0: Welcome to Zenergy, the interactive podcast providing resources for building a better life. I am your conduit, your coach, your catalyst to that better life, Zenashay. So a conduit provides a connection. I am here today to connect you to an author, um, a person that I kind of saw on Facebook and he reached out to me and I think he has a lot to say about being branded, about dealing with a uh, society stigmas and overcoming that. And he wrote a whole book about that. And I'm um, also a catalyst. So I try to spark change by getting people to think about different topics, uh, getting them to think about their life, how they could be influential to other people, how they could be, um, you know, agents of change in this world. Um, and just how to, in a sense, break out of the box that we all sometimes get into when we are not living our most self-actualized life um and I'm also kind of a coach you know when a coach tries to draw out hidden potential in a subject so um, so we are here today to talk about being branded by society and you know when I came up with that title I was trying to shrink down we had a long title you know uh, I was trying to shrink it down and encapsulate what was really gonna be the topic and the focus today and you know I thought about, you know, we're in the A's and B's and C's, I kind of go alphabetically, but I thought about uh, being branded and we all want to be branded in a positive way. Like we want to have our brand that represents us and shows what we bring to the world. But then we have those negative brands, those labels that people try to put on us. And, you know, if you go back to the old days when they literally took the cattle prod and they branded you um, as a slave or as a, a physical piece of cattle, you couldn't take that off. It was with you for life. It was a scar. It was a limitation. It was something that you always had as a reminder of this experience that you had, this painful experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, you were never able to shake it completely. So in some ways, society tries to to brand us in that way and to to never let us forget where we come from um, and never let us rise above that ceiling that's been placed on us. And and so as an audience, I kind of want you to think about that and think about if there have been times when you've been branded by society. society um, and because we're going to get into that topic specifically with uh, people who've been formerly incarcerated. But in to a lesser extent, I think that all of us have probably faced it in one way or another, being branded this or that. Um, I remember growing up, my dad was telling me, You got two strikes against you, girl. You know, you're black and you're a woman. You know, you're gonna have to be twice as good to be considered half as good, you know? And and I remembered that, you know, those being brands that some people would put on me and the word black would have all of these negative connotations to them. The word woman would have all these negative connotations to them. And we've been trying to redefine these labels that people put on us probably, some of us our whole lives, you know? Um, And just get them to see us as individuals and get them to see our potential and and improve ourselves and just break again away from those negative brands. So when you saw the title branded by society, what, what did you think about that title? What came to your mind with the idea of branding or being branded?
1: Yeah, for formerly incarcerated people specifically and I use that term formally incarcerated people or persons because of the societal dominant narrative that we are convicted felons and where people lead with that kind of language first versus what's called person-centered language. So I'm not a felon. I'm not a convict. I'm a host of things besides that. So that doesn't define me necessarily. So that's what I think about is that negative connotation that has been ascribed for so long that, you know, once you've been convicted of a felony, then once a felon, always a felon. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Those kinds mm. of things will come to mind.
0: Okay. And I, I do like that. You know, I think it was my Angelou who said, it's not what they call you. It's what you answer to. Um, and There have been quite a few people that have said I'm not whatever the label was that people wanted to put on them. You know, that doesn't define me. That has nothing to do with me. That's something that happened to me, but it is not me. Um, And, you know, as a person who's on a journey, me personally, as a person who's on a journey, I've been doing a lot of work with different books where they talk about ego and identification and how we start to identify with all these words. But all these words are are concepts that really can't even they can't even capture in any way the fullness of a person, you know. Um, and so when you are limiting a person by their past or trying to anyway, we should know that, that that's not true anyway, because people grow, people change, people learn. And so that person is much more than the labels that we would try to put on them, much more than the experiences or the choices that they've made in the past, you know, and they don't have to be defined by that because, you know, they can always become something different. Um, and so when, when you speak to people that you think have been branded, do you see that some of them are like you? and have sh- you know, shook off those brands and some of them are really stuck in those brands. Do you see that big divide?
1: Yeah, there's definitely a divide because the language has been with us for so long. And so people are content and satisfied with saying, hey, I'm just a convict or what have you, they've accepted it. Whereas those of us who have been involved within the past 10 to 15 years, in trying to change that dominant narrative, new language has come across, which is like I said, formerly incarcerated people, directly impacted people, those with justice involvement. And so when I've done different conversations with journalists and so on, that's always what they lead with is that sensationalized headline, convicted felon did such and such, or even if it was something positive, they led with that versus saying who that person is today. For example, yes, I've been to prison, but I'm an accountant, author, activist, advocate, strategist. So why not lead with that? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, um, yes. I remember I was on a business page on Facebook and the headline was single mother Builds billion dollar business from $10,000, um, grant or something like that. And the people on the website were like, why did they even have to mention she's a single mother? Why are they trying to discount her accomplishment by reducing it in a sense to like, well, well, she didn't get this area of her life right. You know, she wasn't married when she had her child or she didn't stay married. So that somehow minimizes her accomplishment or puts her in this category of, oh, she's one of those who succeeded in spite of, but she still got this strike against her. And I, you know, I thought that that was very interesting that they do many times, journalists, many times want to lead with that negative and keep that person in that box no matter how much they've tried to get away from that box and keep them with that brand, um, it's great that you are, in a sense, pushing back against that You know, and saying, hey, I'm not that and you don't need to define me as that. You don't need to lead with that as your headline. Let's talk about where I am now and let's talk about what I'm doing now. Um, And I think language is very powerful. Absolutely. And I think it is very critical for people to, like you, to, to try to push back against those trigger words, those catchphrases, those, as you said, sensationalized titles that um, yeah. are so often applied to us, people of color.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's intentional, like you said. I mean, it's like that backhanded compliment that has to go in there. Versus just complimenting me for the accomplishment. Mm. You know, because at the root of every dictatorship, genocide, or abuse is the dehumanization of people. And so we use this kind of dehumanizing language to discredit, to abuse, or to justify what we do to people because we don't want to see their humanity.
0: That's very true. You know, um, I'm reading this book right now called uh, The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And we, we do have a, a person that is. Oh, okay. I like what she just said. We have a person who's uh, typing some comments in, Ronika Davis. I hope I, you know, said your name correctly. And she said, I think American society romanticizes the rags and riches narrative instead of life being a journey of growth. Yeah, I could, I could. Yeah, we all should be on a journey of growth. You know, we don't have to always try to make it seem like people came from the bottom. Now we're here, you know, or focus on the bottom where we started at the bottom or we started from this negative thing. But we can focus on where we are now. Um, So I I appreciate that comment. Thank you. And Ranika, share this, you know, try to get your friends, you know, to tune in. Um, But I'm reading this book called The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, which is an interesting book. And he was talking about identity and how when we're first little babies, we don't know who we are, of course. Then we hear our name and we identify with our name and then we learn I and me and we identify with that. And then we learn all of these other things, you know, all of these other titles and we take on all of that. And that sometimes people don't have a really strong sense of self. And so they also begin to identify with who they're not. And they begin to attack who they're not. Well, I'm a good person. I'm not a convict that convict over there is this and this and this and this. And because they want to, in a sense, bolster who they are, they begin to attack the other side. And he was saying that people who are always on the attack and always criticizing and complaining and finding fault, it really shows you that they have a a, not a, a strong sense of self because if they did, they wouldn't need to attack. And constantly degrade and belittle and bring people down. And I thought that was a very powerful thing because in American society, it seems like politicians, political parties, they are so much on the attack against the other, you know, and they do, as you say, try to dehumanize that person uh, or that group and basically call them, you know, brutes. There was a documentary that came out that I saw recently called Exterminate All Brutes. And yeah. it was basically talking about how these groups were vilified so that they could be attacked and killed and, you know, debased and other and, and land could be taken away, their rights could be taken away. You know, so it's, it is the language is a way to try to take away the power of a person. And the power of a group and when you're able to kind of take that language back and say, no, I'm not that, you know, that is a form of innocence reclaiming your power, you know. And And I think that's very powerful to to even give people some people don't know that they have they have the right to do that. Some people think that they have to answer to what they're called, you know, well, I did that, so I guess I have to answer to that and and it's great that there's someone out there like you who's saying no you you don't have to take on that label you can leave that label behind you and you can walk in your the newness of your truth now you know and and give these you know give them other things that they can use to refer to themselves so i think that's very powerful
1: yeah absolutely i mean because for a long time you know people lived in fear and shame and stigma, and what I call that internalized social oppression due to that fear shame and stigma. So we don't necessarily self-identify. That's something that we keep inside. That's something that our family members and loved ones don't want to necessarily share. And so I talk about that in my memoir, how, you know, if you have a parent and someone asks them, well, where's your son or your daughter? And you know that they're incarcerated. So you'll say things like, oh, well, they're away in school or, you know, they're out of town, they're in California. You know, these are things that my own mother would say because it was like, that was no one's business. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we have to get away from because I had a conversation with a woman a couple of years ago. We were doing a one-on-one conversation and I mentioned that very thing. And she said, you know what, Um, to live in shame, is a very lonely place. So I don't live in fear, shame, and stigma, you know, because that is a lonely place because I've been there.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay. I think that is, um, hold on. I have to click something. It looks like, oh, I lost access to Facebook for a minute. Okay. There we go. Okay. It's back on. Um, So that being a lonely place when you are caught up in the stigma, you know, um, I remember as a person who's um, dealt with abuse, those are labels too, you know, and I remember um, hearing the first time somebody say, you know, I'm not a victim I'm a survivor, right? That was an empowering statement to me because a lot of people will say, you know, oh, this domestic violence victim or this uh, victim of, of sexual assault or this victim of incest or whatever it is. And when that person said that, I realized that what they were doing was saying, no, you're giving power to the person who victimized me by saying that I'm their victim. I am no longer their victim. I have gone and moved beyond that. I am a survivor. You know, I am an advocate. I am an activist. I am so many other things. That is something that happened to me, but I'm definitely not a victim of it. Um, and when you do feel like you are stigmatized by that, um, you can feel inferior. You can feel less than. You can feel like everybody else who's walking around here who didn't have that experience, they're better than me because they didn't go through that. They didn't experience that. You know, something about me um, is different and flawed because I went through that. And then taking taking your power back and saying, everybody's gone through something, you know, and uh, we're all survivors of something. And so I'm going to be a survivor of this particular thing, but I still, I'm just as worthy as anyone else. I'm still just as human, just as um, valuable as a human being as anyone else. and And I think that that's a whole nother thing that we have to as a society, we like to throw away people.
1: Right. right. You know Absolutely. we
0: like to pretend like you make a mistake or something happens to you and you just you know you've ruined yourself. And I even remember as a young girl, I would watch these movies I like to watch old movies, you know. And some of these old movies you'd be watching and and the mother's like, you went out with this boy by yourself. You ruined yourself. No man is going to want you, you know, because she went on a date, she was unchaperoned or even if she had sex, you, that's not, you know what I'm saying? That doesn't mean that she no longer has any value, but in our past society, Sometimes people were treated like that. You make this one judgment or this one choice and the rest of your life is over because of that. And people are going to treat you that you're going to wear the Scarlet A, you know,
1: and be shunned. Yeah, we we use that same analogy. I mean, I, I know women who have been incarcerated who said that because of that, they basically felt like trash. They were made to feel like trash. Every time they filled out a job application on application to rent an apartment, that background check came up and made them feel that way. Um, Because some of us have different experiences. Some of us are stronger than others and more resilient in in those areas of being rejected. Um, I remember being 25 years old when I got out of prison and I started working at a state agency. And, you know, women would ask me out to lunch. And mind you, I hadn't been out of prison for two weeks. And so I would decline these invitations because I didn't want to have that conversation of small talk. Well, where did you come from? Because I didn't want to either have to tell them the truth or lie to them that, hey, I just got out of prison two weeks ago. So that's that internalized social oppression, even though. I still considered myself someone who was very confident, you know, in, in having agency. Because, you know, after building a relationship during that work environment with managers and supervisors, um, I, I learned that, you know, when you establish a rapport with people, they will in turn advocate for you. And so, it was a great relief to me not to be ostracized when this manager that I had then offered me a position at the, and she said, is there anything I should know? And I said, yes, I've been convicted of felony. And so there was this weight that was lifted when she said, Oh, is that it? Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, I think we all want the sense of acceptance and belonging, you know, and that just kind of really even empowered me at this time uh, because back then no one was even talking about, the things that we're talking about now as far as reframing the language and finding agency to be able to self-advocate to push back against that dominant narrative.
0: That is a wonderful thing when someone accepts you. You know, I was on Facebook the other day, one of my Facebook friends had posted a comment and she said uh, something to the effect of if you feel shame and embarrassment, that's a, motivation to do better just do better and I responded I said you know a lot of people most people are not motivated by shame and embarrassment it brings them down it makes them depressed it makes them feel hopeless Um, and if you know we had just had that attitude that if you feel shame and embarrassment it's your problem it's your fault and you should just do better You know, um, we wouldn't have some of the advancements that we've had today because I'm a plus size woman. Right. And there was times when I used to be shamed and embarrassed in my body. And if every woman ever felt like that, you know, and no one said, you know what, I'm confident in my body. I'm going to create clothing that's going to reflect my curves because I'm confident we wouldn't even have plus size clothing. If that person has said, well, I guess everybody's right. I just need to diet and I just need to be the same size as everybody else, you know. Um, so that that idea that every time someone feels shame and embarrassment, it should be they should just do better because you can't always do better. And sometimes you've already done what you've done or it's already happened to you. And it's not like you can undo it. You know, um, it's not like you can even reframe how people um, think about that experience. All you can do is take your power back and move forward. You know, so I was trying to get her to see that. And we never came to a, to a yeah. consensus yeah. on that. Um, so going over that idea, you talked about this idea of shame. Um, and, you know, I don't have the same experience as you do, but I can speak about being ashamed of being a divorced woman, a, you know, an abused woman, you know, I I had those innocence brands on me, those stigmas on me. And I had to say, none of that defines me. And it's very interesting. I'm 50. All right. I came out of an abusive marriage when I was what, 29. But there, there are times when you're on social media and somebody will say, would you date someone who was ever in an abusive relationship? And people will say, oh, no. Oh, no, I would never date anybody who was in that situation because there must be something wrong with them. There must be something. They must have low self-esteem. They may have whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's still to this day is still is like, wow, how can you be so quick to judge? Because you don't know what it's like to be in that situation or. They'll say, Would you date someone who's been raped? Oh no, she must have all kind of issues about sex and 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 you know, be afraid of men and think that we're all horrible and you know we're all perverts. Um, and again, my response is uh, well, if you're dating black women, you got a six in ten chance that she's been sexy molested or raped because it happens to about six out of every ten of us. So that doesn't put you at great odds to not run into someone who's been through that and and the thing is when you meet someone and they come out with those kind of statements and you're the woman who's had that experience it's like oh wow i can't even be open with this person you know if i want to continue this i have to in a sense lie right and many times like i would say i'm not gonna lie i would say well you know the woman that you're sitting right in front of you know across the table from I am the woman that you just said you just wouldn't date.
1: Right, right. So,
0: why are we here? Do you yeah. really mean that now? You know, am I what you pictured or did right. you picture something else? Right. You I know? mean, and,
1: and that's what's powerful about sharing your story because it dispels those myths. You know, just like when people see me, they don't even imagine that I've been to prison, that I spent five and a half years incarcerated. And then when I tell them it it blows their mind, you know, because of the stereotypes that, you know, for those of us who've been incarcerated, we're not supposed to be intelligent, articulate or sophisticated. And so I like being that living refutation to dispel those myths. Um, Also, as I was listening to what you said, it made me think about, you know, as a society, we tend to believe that we are prosecutors. Mm. You know, we are not prosecutors for people's crimes that have already been adjudicated. And what you find is some of the harshest people who have actually never been victims or survivors of crime, often being the harshest, talking about what people deserve mm. as punishment.
0: Wow. We are prosecutors. And and that that is so... We 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 say in America, we're a Christian nation, right? That's what people say. But it seems like we are so harsh with each other rather than being forgiving, tolerant, open-minded. Uh, we're judgmental. We're critical. We're um, angry for what reason? I don't know. And I, I haven't figured out why people act and react that way. You know, why they, um, why they are prosecutors, like this person went through this, whatever time ago that they went through it, they, they paid their debt, they made a better choice, you know, and now they're trying to live a different life regardless of whatever the situation was. So why can't we move forward? You know, why do we have to keep rehashing and and trying to box them in and even i've heard some people say why do we even have um those boxes on um the the rental forms you know why don't we have more specific boxes you know um rather than have you been convicted of any crime or have you ever served you know any kind of sentence um so it, you know i i understand people want to feel safe but There's almost, you know, there there's a movie, I think it was safety is an illusion, because just because the person has been convicted of a crime doesn't mean that they're violent. Most people that get convicted of crimes, I think it's something like 98 percent are not violent criminals. It's like a very small percentage of people that are in jail or were convicted or even convicted by a judge or jury because most of them accepted a plea deal, which means they could be innocent. They just got scared of all the numbers and years being thrown at them. So they could be completely innocent and just feel like they don't have a chance to fight it. And then also most people that go to jail in America, because we have the biggest population in the world, it's nonviolent offenses. Oftentimes it's drugs, you know, it's buying, selling, not doing anything violent, So the idea that having this box on a application somewhere makes the society safer is ridiculous. It's not true, you know?
1: No, I agree with you a hundred percent because these are the areas that I work in in my volunteer capacity. You know, when we think about public safety, there's this notion that if we have more police that that's gonna keep us safe that if we give people 40, 50 years, that's going to keep us safe. When in fact, you know, police are a response to crime. They're not crime prevention. And, you know, for example, I own a home, live in the suburbs. My neighbors don't know anything about my background, but they believe that they are safe. Even me growing up in the inner city where there was crime, I didn't necessarily feel unsafe because that was home for me. That was uh, my environment. I didn't see it any any other way. So this notion that, you know, we're, we're safe because we're locking people up or that that's some kind of deterrent is a fallacy.
0: Mm. That's true. That's true. So I want to talk, you know, more about whatever you want to share about your story, your book, how you decided to tackle this issue of the stigma, the branding that is uh, faced by people who are trying to start their lives over again, trying to, they paid their debt, they are trying to move forward. And now they have to deal with these with this baggage, you know, with yeah. this emotional, mental rebuilding of the self, you know, the issues that come come with. Now I'm transitioning into my life after uh, incarceration. So how did you kind of start on this journey? And tell us about that.
1: Sure. Well, you know, when I was 19, this was in the 90s. So you and I are close in age. We're, we're part of Generation X. So I'm, I'm 48. Okay. So in the late 80s, early 90s, of course, crack came to the inner city of Austin and throughout the country. And that is how I got involved with the life of crime. But it was even before that, because, you know, in the 70s and 80s, The street that I grew up on was known for pimping and prostitution. And so this was the world outside my window. And my brother was heavily influenced. He's about five and a half years older than me. And so being the younger brother seeking, you know, his validation and acceptance and approval. When I became 16, we became crime partners, if you will. And so at the age of 19, after graduating high school in 1992, we were raided and I was charged with possession of a controlled substance with the intent to deliver and tax evasion. And believing that my rights had been violated during that search and seizure, because as I was awaiting trial, I went to treat, pre-trial three months later. And we discovered that the police didn't use, marked, or recorded money during the control buy, which is when police use an informant. There was also no surveillance of an informant. You know, of me and him exchanging money or what have you. So I also learned through legal research that probable cause affidavit must be filed with the magistrate before a warrant can be issued. And so while I was arrested, my father would go to the police station and discover there was no probable cause affidavit on the file. So this is what you talked about earlier, how you know people don't go to trial. So I decided to go to trial. And this is what I talk about in, in my book. Because, you know, when we don't fight for our rights, it's just like it's black and white on paper and we don't have any. So I decided to go to trial and our judicial system is one where they're gonna make example out of you for challenging the system or the status quo. And one of the things the prosecutor said during my trial was, do you see how articulate he is? This is what makes him dangerous. Mm. And I want you to consider giving him 45 years. And so the jury would sentence me to 22 and a half years as a 20 year old young man. But when we unpack his statement, what he was really saying is, had I been ignorant and black, then I would have been harmless. Mm. And this is reminiscent of the white racial animus during reconstruction for the social, political, economic gains of African-Americans and when terms like uppity Negro came about, you know, this is reminiscent of that. And this was a 30 30 year old prosecutor here back in 92, who's probably in his fifties today. So where did that come from? And so that's kind of the genesis of the title of my book is 25 years later. I was going to call it 22 and a half years later, but I wasn't complete with it at the time. So by the time I finished writing it, it just so happened to be 25 years later from the time of my, my arrest. So um, September of 2017 was 25 years later after my arrest. And so in my memoir, I'm chronicling my childhood growing up, up until that arrest and bringing us forward to around 2016 is kind of where I closed the book off with the advocacy, social justice, criminal justice reform work that I've been doing.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, as a parent, um, I have two black sons and I wrote an article called um, mothering a member of an endangered species. You can, you know, people who are listening can Google it. It's on like three, it was published in like three different magazines, but it was about how I, as a mother, you know, you know, all of these things in your head, you know, we live in the society that targets black men, you know, these things, right? But it's different when it's your children that you see being targeted, your relatives, your friends. It it just, it's very difficult. And I remember, you know, over the last several years, we've seen a lot more of it portrayed in movies and TV shows. And because and, we didn't necessarily see that when I was growing up, people didn't talk about it. It was just understood, but now we see it. And um, to be on the other side of that, you know, um, being in the courtroom, hearing different things and, you know, you're the mother and you're like, okay, wow. You know, I can only imagine what your family might have experienced, you know, because I know just in the little bit that I've had to deal with with my sons having their little run ins with uh, law enforcement. It's it's very difficult. It's very it it changes a person, you know, Um, it changes the family dynamic. It changes many, many things. Um, So, you know, I can't even imagine being in that courtroom as a mother hearing the prosecutors say he's dangerous because of his articulate nature. And we want to give him all of this time because he's dangerous because he's too smart. You know, we don't need him out here. And, um, it's, it's the things that they want to punish us for that have nothing to do with any kind of legal problems or broken laws. You know what I'm right. saying? is just.
1: Yeah. Whereas I'm that would have been that would have been a positive attribute had right. I been a 19 year old white kid. Right. You know, that would have been a positive attribute to give me some or show me some grace. Right. Right. But since I was black, this was used to to demonize me. Right.
0: Right. It, right. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes me back to I remember uh, I was doing some reading and I heard about this term for the first time it was like drapedomania. And it was a term basically it was a a psychological term that they came up with to explain why runaways, why slaves would keep running away. They had to be mentally insane, you know, because why would they keep running away? Why would they just understand that they were supposed to accept their lot? They were supposed yeah. to accept their situation. So, because they felt like they didn't have to accept it, they could speak up, or they could run, or they could try to do something. They were drapedomaniacs, you know yeah. they they had a they had a mental disorder, and you know that whole idea. Um, even today, you see so much of this idea that well, they should just be quiet and and deal with it. They should just stomach it. They should not speak, you know, um, shut up and dribble, you know? Right. Um, right, right. And if you are articulate, if you do things peacefully, if you do anything at all, the idea, as you said, America wants to prosecute you. They want to take away your job, your home, your reputation. They want to take away your opportunities. Um, Not everyone, but enough people to where it's a problem, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I even talk about that in the book because, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting on countless examples that we have whenever a black person exercises or asserts their rights to law enforcement outcomes, the handcuffs outcomes, the billy club outcomes, the assault outcomes, the deadly use of, of force. You know, and the examples we have of this, of course, is Sandra Bland when she asserted her rights not to put her cigarette out in her own car, then we saw out came the handcuffs and the assault and ultimately led to her death inside the the jail. We saw this with the arrest of Henry Louis Gates when a neighbor called the police and then he showed them that he wasn't breaking into his own house and he identified himself, but since he challenged the police, then he was arrested on his own front porch. And this is because he was basically asserting himself. And we see countless examples of this, you know, whenever a black person questions law enforcement, they're going to be assaulted or they're going to be murdered. And that's unfortunate. But again, if you don't fight for your rights, it's just like you don't have any And one of the things I talk about in the book was, you know, there's a Supreme Court case, which was the Dred Scott case in 1867, I believe, where, you know, Justice B. Taney basically said that a black person has no rights, that a white man is bound to respect. And so I believe that this is a creed in this country, whether it's known or unknown, it is a practice, you know, that is going on that we don't have to respect you, you know, but we have to command it for ourselves, I believe.
0: Mm. Well, I remember again, you know, you find out so many things by reading and, and uh, reading as I would say, true history. Cause some of what I, I learned a lot of things outside of school, meaning outside of what I had graduated high school already. And now I'm learning about our history. So a lot of what we need to learn, we don't always learn in school. And, and now it may be even more difficult to learn it in some places, because if um, the Republicans have their way, nobody will be talking about the Dred Scott case.
1: You know. No, and they, and they weren't, you know, you know yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody um, ever was, because I didn't learn about it until I got out of school.
0: Well, I learned about Dred Scott, but so many other things I didn't learn. I learned when I was an adult, I learned about the Casual Killing Act. And that basically says that, well, there were so many children and young people, young black people, young slaves being killed by the mistresses of the plantation in the act of disciplining them. So the Casual Killing Act basically said if you discipline your slave to the point that they die, it's not a crime. You know, they basically should have been doing what you told them to do. And whatever happens to them is their fault, even if it's death. So there was no idea of um, their lives had any value you know, no, they were, their lives only had value if they were obedient and submissive and compliant. And the moment that they spoke up or were too slow in moving, or just showed an attitude or showed any, you know, desire to learn. I remember um, reading the narrative of Frederick Douglass, And um, when he was talking about how he had this wonderful, a woman that was his slave mistress. She was just so beautiful and so wonderful, so kind, but becoming a slave owner changed her because now she had absolute power over human beings. And she had been teaching him how to read Mm -hmm. and her husband found out and said, you're ruining this slave. He's such a good slave, but you're gonna put these ideas in his head that he can have more and be more and do more. And that's gonna ruin him. He's not gonna be content to be a slave anymore, because now you've given him new ideas. Why would you do that? That's why it's illegal to teach slaves to read because they, all they're supposed to know is what we show them, go pick that cotton, go cook in this kitchen, go do exactly what we say. That is your life, that's all that exists for you. There is nothing else. So when you give him this idea that, oh, here's a book, and this book has all these possibilities, you're ruining him for what we, what we have, you know, planned for him. And, you know, I remember my father told me they used to believe if you want to keep something from a black person, put it in a book, right.
1: Right.
0: You know, so, so you have written a book, because you wanted to tell your story and you do advocacy work, you try to change the language around um, how people speak about and speak to those that were formerly incarcerated. What are other things that you think? You know, what would be your advice to people who either who are in your situation where they're coming out, they're trying to start their life, or they're in any situation where they feel like they've been just really branded by society and written off? and um, in a sense, discarded. Yeah. How would you advise them to get away from that stigmatization and to begin to rebuild their sense of, of confidence and, and um, their, their sense of self where right. they're not taking on this stigma and making it their identity?
1: Yeah, what's very important I believe is to find someone who is basically your your counsel, your mentor, your coach, and someone that can pour powerfully into you. Because when I got out of prison, there were no such things as reentry programs, what we call today re-entry programs and peer support and the kind of things that are coming to fruition where men and women like myself offer peer support to someone who is just coming out of prison because you know you need to find another circle of friends if you will because sometimes the very environments that we come from we have to go back to Mm. and those people haven't shifted and they will pull you back into the things that you were doing before and when you you're trying to go in a different direction so you need to find a new circle of friends peer support especially if it's not Family support, because that was critical for me was that, you know, my mother took me and I had a home to go home to. And so my mother was my, you know, coach, counseling guide and poured into me, you know, when I first got out and supported me. And I think that's what um, I would advise the most is to find other formerly incarcerated people who've been there, done that which is pretty much, you know, my story, because I spent 17 years on parole. You know, like I said, I had a 22 and a half year sentence. So I was incarcerated from 19 to just shy of my 25th birthday and didn't get off parole until 2015. So that would classify me as a parole or reentry expert, because Uh most people said it couldn't be done. And most people don't, you know, do five or 10 years on parole, they're usually back within the first three years, which is what we call recidivism. So you have to seek out, you know, other people who are doing positive things because we're definitely out there all over the country. There are men and women who have obtained bachelor's, master's degrees, PhDs, who are executive directors of nonprofits, people who have become attorneys, doctors, what have you. You know, but if we don't... Uh, lean into that fear of self-identifying that, hey, this is what I've done. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. This is who I am now. Then that's not going to inspire someone else to step up and and come forward if you don't, if we don't, right? So that that would be my advice.
0: That's some really good advice. You know, um, I I can mirror that from a different perspective, you know, uh, when I came out of my abusive relationship, um, I remember, you know, one thing that the cops did well, they handed me this pamphlet, they handed me a pamphlet and I am a reader and I opened it up and it had just nothing but numbers. just a bunch of different numbers and addresses, all these different community resources, which I didn't know anything about. So, um, I remember going to the Houston area women's center and doing their intake and then they had the support groups for women coming out of these situations. And I probably went to that support group for a year, at least, you know, every Thursday they had, they care for the kids, you know, where you went in that your kids were taken care of. They were in a safe environment. You were able to sit there and talk about your issues. And every time we went to support group, they had things for us to read. They had books that they recommended they had, So that was another thing for me that, um, seeing people who were farther along in the journey, like you said, kind of a mentor and advisor, but also, you know, reading. Um, I got one of the people that s- inspired me so much at that time was Iyanla Van Zahn. I think I read everything that she had ever written because she had had similar experiences to mine and I could mm-hmm. really identify with her. And I, you know, I read Maya Angelou and I read, you know, just women who had gone through some things. So. I remember reading that and I began to think if she did it, I can do it. You know, I can become something different. I don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed or stigmatized by whatever happened. I can move beyond that. And so, you know, that's, I think the mentoring is really powerful. Getting counseling therapy, sometimes you can get it, you know, through different organizations, agencies uh, is really helpful you know, whether it's job counseling, mental counseling, you know, whatever. Those I think are really, really helpful to really build your sense of self because I think that when you're coming out of um, a traumatized situation, you can have lost yourself. You can have, you know, lost your vision, your dreams, your, um, a lot of that. And you have to, in a sense, build it up again and, and, you know, Sometimes I say I feel like I've been like three different people because I kind of lost a couple of those people along right, the way. And then I had right. to rebuild and yeah. re- reinvent
1: yourself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it, it's doable. It's not easy, but it's definitely doable. Yeah. Yeah. And so finding that help in that um, circle, that circle of influence. And, and then I, I always like to say, as you're doing. You know, when you learn, teach. I think my Angelou also said that. You know, reach yeah. back yeah. to those people that are behind you to help them get on their feet, to help them to 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 be an inspiration, to be you know motivation, to be a guide. So I agree with that completely.
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the the taglines that I use for an organization that we co founded called RAP, which is the Reentry Advocacy Project. And a couple of years ago, we did what's called Rap Stars, which means mm-hmm. speaks, teaches, advocates and reaches because that's what we do. We speak, teach, advocate and reach back to formerly incarcerated people and in their families, you know, um, because that's important. That's very powerful to, to see someone that's been through what you've been through and their story resonates with you and it, and it inspires you. And so that was the genesis or the impetus for the work that I do, but I didn't get here alone. Someone inspired me because I was listening to a community radio station here in Austin called KZI, and I heard this Chicano gentleman on the radio with this deep, powerful, poetic voice. He was eloquent, and he was talking about how he had worked for the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. He was drafting bills for the legislature. And he had spent 27 years incarcerating am like, damn, you know, I got to go meet this guy. Uh-huh. And, and so that's what I did. I went to go find him in, in that organization. And so that was kind of the beginning. This was around 2012, because, you know, prior to that, I had been out of prison since 98. I had hit the ground running, had moved on with my life and career working for state government. And I wasn't doing anything other than living my life and, and, being successful, but I knew that I had something to offer and something that I could lend to this cause because in 2010, Michelle Alexander had dropped her groundbreaking book, uh, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration, Aids of Colorblindness. And she came to Austin and she gave a lecture. And I remember her closing call to action was, you are gonna lead this movement to end mass incarceration. And so she was talking to me. Right. And so that is what inspired me to get involved with criminal justice reform and and advocacy. And I felt like, well, there's no other, no better way than to tell people what I've been through because I had never talked about it before. And so it was actually quite uh, cathartic to start telling my story, regaining power over my story. Not being afraid to tell people, you know, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. And then the book would come, you know, many years later because people would plant those seeds that you have lived such a rich life and you need to tell your story. And so it it took a little time. Sometimes I'm a procrastinator, but (laughs) I, I sat down and 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 started doing it because I was challenged to. You know there was a woman who had also been incarcerated and wrote a stage play and wrote her own book and it was in the texas department of criminal justice system for women and so on facebook she had a writing challenge um she created a group specifically to write some essays and so i put in a submission and she liked it and i said okay but i'm not satisfied so there the the book was born you know i just wasn't content with giving her just this piece, this chapter, you know, there was so much more to tell.
0: I think there is always more, you know, because um, when I went through my situation and I put that behind me and I'm like, oh, I've learned from that, I've grown. um, I thought I was done with that, you know? I thought I was done with that and I wasn't really thinking about it. And then years later, I began to write about, those circumstances and then i began to write about all kinds of different things you know and i had been writing my whole life but i hadn't written those very personal very traumatic very how can i put it i heard one poet say it's like cutting your cutting your pinky off and just you know handing it to the audience <laughs> saying, Hey, you know, you see all my blood and guts everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Here you go. Um, this is my gift to you, you know, but that was, that was a very gory way of putting it, but it was like, you were just cutting, you know, open your heart and just saying here, this is what I went through. Um, and, and this, but it wasn't just to share the pain, but it was to share the triumph and to say, this is, this is the depth and this is the Heights. And this is how I got between the two, you know, and um, so those are broken into many different essays and poems and all kind of different things. And, and I didn't really start talking about my experience until probably about two years ago. You know, yeah. very few people knew any of this. I mean, just very, maybe I'd say less than five people probably knew any of this until about two years ago. And then I began to write and perform and share some of those experiences about, about three years ago. And then um, when quarantine happened last year, it actually sent me back to that beginning again. Because as a performer, I'm a spoken word artist, we lost all our shows.
1: Right. And
0: one of the things that I had done before when I came out of my abusive relationship was I had done my own personal ABCs, you know, because I felt like I had lost everything. I didn't have anything, I didn't even know who I was. So I would literally go and say, I am, and just go through the A's and the B's and the C's, you know, and all these, I would just put all these attributes and thoughts and, and I had posted it up on my wall, you know, so I could look at it and remind myself of what I actually had within me and what I was actually capable of. And then I started again with that from a different perspective. It wasn't really about just me, but it was like more what skills have I developed that COVID hasn't taken away from me? What have I learned? What are what are you know priorities or principles that really have guided my life? And I started with the ABC. So I actually created um, I'm gonna show you this, I'll show you the audience this. I have this personal development package, this is what it looks like. It's like $15. And it's called Zenergize Your Life. So this is just the A's actually this workbook and it comes with like a journal, a motivational band tabs Um, and each page is a different topic. So we were talking about mentors. So here like this is the first page. You have journal prompts, you get a blank journal, you can respond to the journal and then you have um, where you can put a song, a movie, a book. You know what songs really inspire you what movies really make you think about this topic what books can you read or have you read on this topic and then you have the vision board space at the bottom i believe visuals are really powerful so the first topic was abundance so you have this picture of like the earth with all these arrows around it that was my picture for like you know all the ways i could bless people people could bless me and then i have langston hughes over here Cause he was like the first black writer that made a living from his writing and I have Oprah. So, you know, we're talking about those mentors. So every page is a different topic and you know, of course you get a blank one, but I actually created that, um, and started doing workshops with that, where I was taking people, you know, through all these a's, it was like 16 a's. And then now I'm just finishing volume two. I hope to have volume two done by the end of this week which is the rest of the A's and the B's. So it's about another 20 pages. So like this is going to be, uh, this topic branded by society will be actually a page in the, in the B book. Okay. And it will just be some journals about this topic. You know, who, who do you feel was branded by society? They could put a picture, but rose above that. You know what I'm saying? And I, for example, if I was going to do that page, One of the first people that comes to mind is Malcolm X, you know, he was branded as a pimp, a hustler, a no good, you know, went to jail and in jail, he started to read. He started to challenge all the beliefs that he had been taught. He started to realize that he had been programmed with a lot of negative ideas about himself. And he began to say, I don't have to accept any of this. I can redefine myself. I can take all these stigmas off of me and I can become a disciplined person, a principled person, a person with a purpose. And he came out of his incarceration, Ooh, excuse me, got hiccups, a totally different person. And he did not let his past define him. You know, right. he wrote that amazing autobiography of Malcolm X that anybody who's read it, I don't know how you couldn't be inspired by that book. You know? Yeah, and yeah. And so he would be a great example to me of someone who said, hey, um, I know what I was. I know where I was. I know what they called me. And I'm not answering it to any of that right, anymore. Right. I'm a totally new man, you know. And Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: I use um, a- another example. It's been many years ago now. I was um, speaking at a conference and it was at the time when Nelson Mandela had passed away. Mm-hmm. And so as we were driving down to San Antonio to go to this, basically it was a re-entry conference with parole officers and you know, jails and different criminal justice officials. And, and, and it just had set on my mind, you know, and one of the things I said, you know we just lost one of the greatest leaders of our time. Mm. They called him a terrorist, he blew up buildings. Mm. He spent 27 years incarcerated, but he also went on to become the president of South Africa. Yeah, you know, and I mean, these are examples that we often don't even think about, you know, and my colleague next to me, you know, after we had got done, people were coming up, approaching us, and she said, you know, you had people in the audience in tears, you know, because when you know all of the barriers that people who have been incarcerated face, how -hmm. can you punish them for their failure, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know? With all the barriers that come after, the collateral consequences that come after someone is released. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that opportunity like Nelson Mandela had to become president.
0: Yeah, that is powerful. And, you know, two of the women that I think are just beautiful women, they both passed on now that um, mirror some of the experiences that I had in terms of being abused. Um, Eartha Kitt, um, she had many things that happened to her, but she became, you know, this amazing actress and icon, you know, Maya Angelou, um, had some horrific things that happened to her as a child. Uh, Some people don't even know that she worked as a prostitute and a madam at one point in her life. And they would be like, Maya Angelou, what? You know, but... That didn't define her. She became a dancer. She became, you know, an actress, an activist. She, of course, we know she's an amazing poet and writer and speaker and thought, you know, coach and thought leader. Um, Inspired and mentored so many amazing women. But had these women and these men been defined by what they had chosen or what had happened to them, years prior, we would not have these amazing stories that we have. It's because they, in a sense, decided to not let that stigma, that shame, that uh, embarrassment, those, the limitations of society, the brands that society wanted to put on them, they did not let the, those limit them. And they, they became the icons that we know today. And some people, some people don't even know. Yeah. Their most history. People don't they know. just know the now and right. they're, They're in a sense, almost scandalized. How could you say that about my, you know, my, well, it's the truth, but we're, we're not focused on, on where they came from. We're focusing on the fact that they didn't let those things, you know, hamper them and hinder them. They move way past it. So to where you don't remember in a sense, the failure, you remember the success. Yeah. And it's the success that inspires you.
1: Yeah, I mean, and he, I'll, I'll even offer, you know, to the contrary with those that we do know, you know, because there are artists, entertainers, cultural pop icons yes. that we know have been to prison, right? Yes, yeah. T.I. Yes, <laughs> Good you know what I'm saying? But yeah. are we demonizing them? Right. Because we, we're not demonizing them because we love their art. Right. You know, whereas you'll say, well... I don't, I won't date someone who's been Mm -hmm. in prison or convicted of a felony. But you love T.I., you love Jay-Z. You know, you love these these other cultural pop, hip-hop icons and so on and so forth. I mean, and even some of our, you know, television and, and stage actors and so on and so forth, you know.
0: I got you. Well, tell the people where they can find you and where they can find your book
1: Yeah, so here's a copy, 25 Years Later, A Sentence from Crime to Redemption, Advocacy and Leadership. It can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You can follow me on Facebook, Darwin Hamilton. You can also follow the author page, which is 25 Years Later, and I can be followed on Instagram at DHAM, D-H-A-M, 629.
0: Awesome. And I am Zenashe, that's spelled Z-E-N-A-S-E. And this is Zenergy, which is spelled Z-E-N-N-U-R-G-Y. It's the urge for more peace and fulfillment in life. So if you're watching us live or if you're watching us on the replay on YouTube or on Facebook, there are about 38 other episodes that you can... Um, Listen to on Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the listening platforms. I'm on over about 17 now listening platforms that you can listen to. A new episode is released every week um, about all kinds of different topics. They are pretty much alphabetical order, not always alphabetical order, but ABC. We're in the D's, I think, now. This one is B because sometimes I go backwards and forwards depending on what people want to talk about. So... Um, I hope that you really enjoyed, you know, my guest, Darwin Hamilton, as he shared his journey and his thoughts on overcoming social stigma for the people who are formerly incarcerated and just for anyone who's dealt with those, you know, stigmatization being branded by society. I hope you were uplifted by today's talk. And you realize that, You do not have to be defined by your past. You do not have to be defined by the labels people put on you. You can take your power back. You can reimagine yourself. You can speak about yourself, think about yourself differently. And the sky is the limit. No matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can move past that. You know, we both have and many, 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 many other people have. And it's all about... Just doing the best you can to move forward and using all the resources at your disposal, like his book, like my personal development package and many other things that are out there. So you can find me, uh, Z-E-N-A-S-E on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, my website, laughsandlyrics.com. It's spelled L-A-U-G-H-Z-A-N-D-Lyrics.com. And if you put a slash in shop, you can actually shop for all kind of inspirational merchandise there. So thank you for joining us today on um, this live Zenergy episode. And may you walk in Zenergy. <laughs> Have a great night. My name is Zenar Shea. And I have a weekly podcast called Zenergy, which is fuel for the mind, body, and soul. And this is the Zenergize Your Life Goal Setting Package, Volume One. It comes with the workbook, a journal, stickers, a bookmark, tabs, and a QR code where you can find my podcast. And inside this workbook, you're gonna have 16 different principles. The first one, I'm gonna show you mine, is abundance. You have a place to put pictures that inspire you of role models, also pictures of goals that you wanna create, Goals, journal prompts, meditations, affirmations, all kinds of things to help you focus on this principle to better your life. And like I said, there are 16 principles. So, this is a $15 package that comes with all of these things I've shown you, $21 with shipping and handling. And you can get it at laughsandlyrics.com. So, synergize your life with me. Thank you.